0: Howdy, everybody. you, The Collective. We have another fantastic show. What was that? Too
1: Fast. Too Fast? Really? Oh, man.
0: We've been having some clipping issues with the audio and the little video that I play as the intro. So, okay. I thought I had enough time. I guess not. Let me get into the preamble before I do anything else. Um, while I'm doing my preamble, make sure that everybody likes the page. Hits the subscribe button. Does the notification bell that we get your email every day. And then um, let me get into this. So... None of us, first off, are doctors or medical professionals by any means, so anything we do talk about or say is our experience and uh, what we've learned from around the world. Um, We have June, it is men's mental health this month, so we're going to be talking about all the different facets of men's mental health throughout this month and continuously for the rest of the month. Now, if you do have any questions or thoughts, put them up in the comment section. We can put them all up here and read them and discuss them. As we go from there. Last but not least, um, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot what the last one was. So, either way, I think I'm under time, which is great. And with oh, yeah, that's right. So we're gonna get some uh, intros here sorted out. Scott, you want to hit us up with a general intro? Let us know who you are, where you come from, all that good jazz.
2: Okay, sure. Uh, I'm the founder of the Rolling Barrage. Uh, served in the Canadian Army for 10 years in the Infantry Royal Canadian Regiment, Canada's Senior Regiment. Just thought I'd mention that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I did a tour in the former Yugoslavia back in uh, 1992, Roto Zero, and came home, knew I was a different person after that, like most of us, and got uh, deeply entrenched in uh, mental wellness and so on for uh, veterans and and now for first responders as well. yeah, I've been to uh, Ottawa a number of times, and spoken with uh, you know, the parliament there and about mental health issues and specifically post-traumatic stress and operational stress injury. And I've uh, yeah, written a book about my tour over there, did a documentary for History Television, and here I am.
0: It's one or two things, no big deal. <laughs> uh, and John, give me a little snippet of what, who, where you, who you are, where you come from, all that good stuff.
3: All right. Hey, thanks. Yeah. John Gronsky uh, served in the army for 40 years, retired as a major general. Uh, and uh, some of the key assignments I had uh, served in Lithuania back in 2000 for a year, which was pretty interesting. Uh, it was just seven years after the Lithuanians regained their independence from the, the Soviet Union. So interesting times over there. Uh, commanded a brigade in Ramadi, Iraq in 05 and 06 pretty violent time there and just had the honor to serve with some just remarkable uh soldiers marines sailors and, and airmen over there uh, commanded a the 28th infantry division which is a pennsylvania army national guard division and then spent the last three years of my military career as one of the deputy commanding generals at u.s army europe when i retired in 2019 i uh Uh, started a leadership consulting company. I I do a lot of uh, leadership training for law enforcement, which has a very similar culture to uh, the military. And also for businesses, I'm still involved with uh, doing leadership uh, training and presentations for, for the Army as well. And I'm just happy to be with you all today. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. Sean, you got any
0: questions right off the bat?
1: No, uh, I understand that we are jumping into the long game, no? Yes, indeed. Well, the it looks like we've got game. some folks who've got some gray hair, so we should be able to talk about the long game. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking today
0: when I was trying to figure out what to talk about this morning. Um, but well, let's dive right into it. The The concept of the long game, you know, being able to play in depth or being able to utilize the information at a later date rather than just requiring Uh, instant gratification. Uh, I think it's something that we, especially as young men, we struggle with. At least I know I did (laughs) even now. um, But especially when I was 20, 25, I really struggled with that immediate gratification. I wanted stuff right now. Got to be right now versus deferring or putting in extra effort to get something later on. And so the first question I guess I have is, Do you guys still see that in the younger generation? Is that something that you guys eventually learned how to step out of, or has it been an innate um, sense since you were young? I'm going to start with Sean.
1: Uh, Well, so I'm 60 this year, fellas, and we all look to be about heading in that same general direction of 60-ish, by the looks of it. John, how old are you? I'm 67. Okay. And what about yourself, Scott? Oh, I had him. Sorry, how'd you move? There <laughs> oh, we
2: go. I'm I'm still a young young pup here at fifty-six. So okay. okay. Still, so we're all cool kind of hanging
1: around those late fifties, early sixties kind of thing. Okay, except for John, who's mega old. So uh, <laughs> I I that's an that's an important aspect of this conversation. I feel because uh, my generation, uh, I was born in sixty-three, and uh, so my gen. Uh, or maybe my life and my generation, I didn't have much. I didn't expect much. I never. I, I, I didn't get used to the idea of instant gratification. Everything that I ever got when I was a kid, I had to earn, and, and it was earn it the hard way. And so when I joined the military, I was already used to working hard and, and understanding that if I wanted something, it just didn't appear magically in front of me on a silver platter. And so my military career reinforced that, that all of the things that I wanted to earn – took a lot of hard work and took a lot of time. And uh, so when I finally reached tier one, I think I could look backwards at that point and realize, you know, that took a lot of effort to get to the starting line of tier one. Now I don't even know where this is going to go. So then I was looking further forward into the unknown long game. My careers have since, um, after I left JTF2, have since reinforced this notion of the long game. And uh, when I left the teams, I was trying to figure out how to do sort of a tier one approach to life or to the careers that I would get involved in. And I established what I probably defined as the ultimate long game for me. So anything that I took on, uh, any hobby, we'll call it mountain biking as an example, I established immediately, it's going to be a minimum 10-year project. So anything that I engage in seriously, I instantly allocate a 10-year project to it, just like this podcasting thing. Uh, I think I've got about eight years of it left now, unfortunately. And so the I, I set a minimum standard of I'm going to give it 10 years, and then I'll see where it goes from after that. And so now at 60, I can look back at all of those uh, 10-year projects. Some of them are 12 years long. Some of them are seven years long. Some of them are... 23 years long and uh i now much better understand what truly the long game means versus when i was just 20 and 30 years old it's hard to understand long if if you have never played a lot of long games great point john you got any thoughts
3: uh yeah you know i kind of grew up in the same era as sean and uh you know a lot of the same stuff you know i remember (laughs) taking a bath in like a a metal corrugated tub, you know, I mean, and, and (laughs) stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I always tried to seek out things that were kind of challenging and tough. I mean, that's why I like to play football in high school. That's why uh, I joined the army, you know, it was about looking, looking for a challenge. Uh, One thing I have noticed about uh, many uh, people from, let's just call it the, the current younger generation is it seems as though a lot of the folks uh, who are like 22, 23 years old want the same things that took me 40 years to to earn. You know, they mm-hmm. want it. They want it like immediately. And I, I always find that kind of kind of interesting. But you know, I really think it comes down to uh, trying to be a resilient person, and also self discipline is a big key part of this. And some people think that. You know, if you're a self-disciplined person, meaning putting out putting off gratification, you, you know, to the future. So you could could work on some of the fundamentals you have to work on today. Some people think, you know, that that's, uh, you know, takes away freedom. Actually, I think if you're a self-disciplined person, it actually provides you more options in life. Uh, and at least i found it that way as, as I proceeded uh through through my years so that's the thoughts i'd like to share at this point i like that scott
2: uh i would say that uh the fact that we are here at this point in our lives shows that we we are part of the long game we've we've kind of mastered that part to this point because we're still here and we're not necessarily looking for instant gratification uh, I recall, and, and this is just a quick story that, that relays that, that message. When I was a young soldier, the the chief of defense staff was still a, a young second lieutenant. And he had a conversation with me about how I was going to go places. And, and in, the, uh, in the Army, I was a lifer. And unfortunately, I only served 10 years. Uh, but that's where, you know, short term, I was looking 10 years, 20 years, I was going to make a, a life out of it. And that didn't work out for me. Fast forward to 2019 and I'm standing with the chief of defense staff and he says, Casey, I always knew you'd be a leader in something. You'd always finish a monumental task. And so the rolling barrage has been that, that long game for me. We're in our seventh year this year and, you know, just being here and being able to look back and say, you know, the, the chief of defense staff and I, forward chief of defense staff and I, uh, he was, I was just a young corporal and he was a uh, second lieutenant, you know, and, and then uh, 25, 30 years later, I get that compliment. So that's, that's not instant gratification. That's something that took 30 plus years to get. So, and I wasn't looking for it.
1: So that's, I like that. yeah. And, and there's a, actually a critical message in there that ties into this overarching theme. And that is, uh, you may or may not ever get validation on the fact that you played the long game. But if you do get validation, and even if it's just an almost inconsequential blip to most people around you, for a person in a particular setting, just like yourself, with that maybe nod 25 years later of, man, you really did turn out to be something, and I'm I'm loosely paraphrasing that, Um, that little nod from the right person decades later is enough to make all of those decades worth it. And so it's an important distinction between constantly wanting to be 40 years into the game within your first year and desperately needing validation versus being 40 years into the game, never needing any validation. And the moment that you get one tiny little nod, just one over all of those years, only one, if you only get that one, that's the one that makes it all worthwhile. So it's two interesting validation uh, generational differences, and it's two interesting generational long game determination differences.
3: Mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, speaking of validation, I, I think where I get the most, uh, I guess, fulfillment out of validation is when I get validated by, by people who used to work for me rather than people that I used to work for if you know what I mean. I mean, to get validation from uh, people that you used to lead or people who followed you rather than people you followed, to me, it's just a very fulfilling thing because, you know, as, as leaders, you know, we do try to put the welfare of our followers ahead of our own. And when you hear someone come up to you, you know, a couple of years later and say, hey, you know, thank you for your mentorship. And you didn't even realize you were mentoring anybody. You know, but but maybe because of your example or maybe because of something you said and you didn't even realize you were into a mentoring type of situation at the time, people, you know, uh, uh, got something from it. And, and that's that's, I think, fulfilling for for me, as well as I'm, I'm sure many other people.
1: So, John, I have a question for you. I'm sure that you you observed the pattern many times over your career, where someone either that worked for you or you work for you would get some form of validation. It seems to me, just like myself, you prefer that kind of validation through the context of leadership related or or making someone a better human being. We'll call it. Uh, What what. What was what were the kind of validations that really stood out to you? Um, and and they may not have been massive or minor. I, I'm not going to contextualize it. What were the things that stood out for you as, wow, you know, I either needed that or that really left an impact?
3: Yeah, and I think it's just people that I run into who I haven't seen in a long time or maybe some people who reach out to me now and then on on social media who maybe, uh, tell me that I made some type of impact in their life. Uh, and I didn't even realize that. I mean, some of these people, you know, you, 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 you didn't even realize that, that, that you were doing that. Um, you know, I remember, uh, I was visiting a soldier at Walter Reed, uh, after we came back from Ramadi and, uh, I was still serving in the military at the time. And this, um, NCO comes over to me, um, uh, from an active uh, component unit who was task organized with us, and he he saw the patch on my shoulder, some um, you know my name tag, and he said, "Hey, I just want to tell you that your brigade really took care of us, and you know, not necessarily that I took care of anybody, but but our brigade did, and that really made me feel good because he didn't have to say that there was nothing." Nothing in it for him to say that, uh but just just hearing something like that uh provides me personal fulfillment, like okay, um you know doing the right thing really mattered to somebody and and uh you, you realize realize how good that was for in somebody's life. it made a difference and it made an impact in somebody's life
1: so i is it I'm just gonna tease the 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 details out just a touch. is it fair to say that? in that moment, you uh, appreciated that validation more so because the individual was referencing the team rather than referencing you. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, absolutely it does. Uh, Because uh, let's face it, um, leadership is not a solo uh, role. Really leadership is, is, is really all about team. I mean, if a leader can't bring a team together uh, the leader is not going to accomplish anything at all. So yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's because he was he was uh, referring to the team is is what made it more of an impact for me.
1: Yeah, good man, and and one final uh, nuanced uh, question: uh, Would you? Is it? possible for you now to separate or distinguish between someone referencing a team effort and that's the validation and that's what you appreciate the most. But is there an is there a moment in your life where someone validated just you, the John, the just you all by yourself or something? And and maybe could you make a comparison between those twos on, two on how how it makes you not feel, but how you consider these sort of things?
3: Well I I guess I uh in both situations it, it it, validates me where I felt like okay I did something right. You know, re- whether it was referring to a team that either I led or I was a part of, or if it was referring to me uh, personally. Uh I mean I, I could tell you just just a real quick story if you want. I don't want to yeah, please. No, no, please the conversation here. But um real quick uh after nine eleven. I had to take 2,000 soldiers over to Europe to do force protect, uh, force protection on military bases over there. Um, 2,000 soldiers spread across four different uh, countries in Europe uh, during this force protection mission. And uh, since we we're over there in Europe, you know, I uh, I said, hey, there's not going to be any general order number one. Of, you know, when you're off duty, if you want to drink, go out and drink. But if you screw up, you're going to have to pay the consequences. Sure enough, two weeks after we we're over there. One of our soldiers gets drunk, gets in a fight at a bowling alley, throws a German civilian over a balcony. Uh, you know, injures that German civilian. I mean, it was a mess. So, actually, this this soldier, you know, was court-martialed, put in a stockade. That happened in September. Uh, in December, you know, on Christmas Day, a few months later. Uh, I say to my driver, "Hey, we're we're going to drive to the stockade in Mannheim, Germany. I want to visit the soldier on on uh, Christmas Day." And he was he was an E6 when he got into that altercation, busted down the E1, spending time in the stockade in Mannheim. Uh, I drive over there on Christmas Day. Uh, he comes into the visitor area. I was the only one. I was the only visitor there. Uh, he was just shocked to see me and. After we made a little bit of small talk and I asked him how he was doing, he said, what the heck are you doing here? I was a colonel at the time. He said, Colonel Gransky, what? Why are you even here? He goes, I embarrassed you. I embarrassed the unit. And I said, well, let me tell you what I said. You're still one of our you're still one of my soldiers. You're still one of our soldiers. And, you know, I wanted to come see how you're doing. Fast forward about three years later. I get down uh, to Camp Shelby, where the brigade that I was going to take command of was training to go over to Ramadi, and uh, I'm walking through the barracks area uh, after I get there, and I see three soldiers standing outside of a barracks. One of the soldiers comes running over to me, stands at attention, salutes. I see he's an E4, and he goes, "Uh, you don't remember me, do I? I go, I'm not sure. He goes, I'm the soldier you came to visit on Christmas Day. And then he looks over to the soldier standing over by the barracks, and he says, "Colonel Gronsky is our commander now. We're going to be in good hands with him. We could trust him." And uh, it really made an impact. If I was just trying to do the right thing uh, by visiting the soldier on Christmas Day, three years later, he still never forgot that. And then he actually spoke up and validated me to other soldiers, which was extremely important. So it just goes to show. You try to do the right thing for somebody, people remember it.
0: 100%. Awesome. <clears throat> uh, Scott, you got any thoughts?
2: Oh, uh, <laughs> I think that's one of the most important things is doing the right thing. Uh, it pays dividends long down the road. So well done, sir. That was uh, brilliant. Uh, and I know it wasn't done out of, I, I need to do this because it'll pay me off later. It was, you were doing the right thing. I think that's what most of us should focus on. Nine times out of ten, if we're given that opportunity, uh, it's going to pay off down the road. And not just in the fact that somebody might come up to you and say, hey, thanks for doing that. It's actually going to enhance your being as well. You're going to know that you've done the right thing each time and every time. You've done the mirror test every day. And, you know, that kind of stuff at the end of the day leaves you with that feeling of fulfillment that, that nobody else could give. That's, that's something that you have to find yourself. So uh, I'm right on board with that. Absolutely.
3: You, You know, Scott, you just said something really important. You said, you know, doing, doing something for others. And, you know, we talk about mental health. I know you've been talking about mental health on, on the podcast here and, and long game and such, but, you know, in terms of, of, being a resilient person and being able to overcome some of the demons that might reside in in us because of our past experiences. I think the best way to become a resilient person is by looking for ways to serve others and and looking for ways to reach out and help others. And I think when we focus on helping others, we actually help ourselves internally without even realizing it sometimes. So, uh, Scott, you mentioned that. and I think that's a great point.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's it's so important that we find ways to uh, reach out and help others to deal with the stuff that we're dealing with. It, it's it takes a lot of strength to actually put yourself out there and and become that person the that is willing to say, "Hey, something's not right here," or "Something is very right here," and and I want you to to be the you know be the recipient of something that you can build in yourself. And I think that's, th- that's the key part in all of this stuff is that all of our building blocks that we try to do for others, we're actually building ourselves at the same time. And as you pointed out, resilience comes in the long run with doing that. Resilience doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's a process. And uh, sometimes you don't even realize you, you've you been resilient until, you know, there's, there's some sort of an action or a reaction and it. That goes. Oh wow! I actually made it through that. I can't believe it. And then you, then you can go with the. Hey, nice job, kid. You know, so. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I like that, John, You got any thoughts?
1: Yeah. So the um, building a team that is cares for each other um, through leadership by example is such a powerful thing. And uh, it's something that we're trying to do over here on The Collective. It's something that we're trying to do on the daily, just digitally in the interweb battle space of trying to reduce the Darth Vader's and increase the Obi-Wan Kenobi's. Uh, Because, uh, you know, we are in a bit of a battle space right now of good versus evil, for lack of a better term. And I don't want to talk about specific countries or specific players or specific attitudes. I'm just going to keep it really simple. There's a, there's, a, there's a good way to run your life and there's a bad way to run your life. And if you're running your life in a good way, you're going to lead by example, you're going to positively influence people around you, and you're going to see the positive outcomes of that ripple all around you in a 360-degree sphere so that years later, you'll see the results of those ripples, but you might not see them today. If you're doing your best today to be cool and positive and make someone smile and, and not force them to smile, but make them smile in a way that they own the smile. If you can find a way just to be a good dude today, the ripples that you lay down today, you may never see, but maybe your neighbor will see, or maybe the guy across the street will see, or across the town will see doing good always creates impact, whether we get to see the fullness of that impact. Just like uh, you saw in the Mannheim uh, situation, that's a rarity that that you ever get to, that we ever get to see these kind of sequences of events over a long period of time play out, so that you see the positive outcome, which reinforces within ourselves, oh, this does work. Oh, if I do this, then that. These these real um, eye-opening moments where it all comes together and you see the obviousness of how to do it well it's rare and so the moment that you see it you've got to latch onto it you've got to believe in it and you've got to execute against it so that others can see that the manheim situation for lack of a better term is available to all of us all the time
0: 100 any other thoughts on that i got a couple comments here i wanted to hit up but any other anything else
3: uh, I, you know just just real quick before you get to the comments i yeah. mean to, to, to me, karma is a po- powerful thing. I, I think there's some power in the universe. When you when you do something good for somebody else, some good is going to come back to you. And I don't mean you do good for other people because you're looking for that good to come back to you. But it, it, I think that's just the, the way of the world and the way of the universe. And and uh, I, I think if, if nothing else, that's a great incentive for people to try to do the right thing and, 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 and try to look out for other people because that good is going to come back to you. Yeah. Scott, you got anything?
2: Yeah, I'll just say, just because uh, John had mentioned that, uh, and, and going back to your Mannheim uh, story, that soldier came up to you because you visited him on Christmas Day. So that karma came back to you in the regard that he validated you to the other soldiers. Now that information gets passed down to the rest of the troops. And now you've, you've built that strength within your unit that, that, Hey, we can trust this guy and we know that he's going to get the job done and and he's going to look after us. So that karma was built, you know, in an instant of you just visiting that soldier in, in in jail there. so well done. And again, you weren't even looking for it. You're just looking after him. So.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Sean, you got anything else to add before we... Hit the comments, buddy. All right. So we got a uh, couple of other uh, question. Tanya says, love that point. Discipline equals freedom may be one of the most important lessons we can learn. I agree 100%. Um,
1: I'm still trying to learn the lesson <laughs> quite regularly, <laughs> but uh, that's... Well, a, there's, a, two that's a... there, there's two lessons. There's two lessons in respect to discipline equals freedom. There's the first lesson, which is go out, buy the book, read it, and then think that you understand discipline equals freedom, which you don't. Then there's the other lesson, which is discipline equals freedom over a long period of time. Then you'll start to understand how discipline equals freedom. No one understands that statement by reading a book in a day. It just takes years to really, and I mean truly, understand how discipline equals freedom. So, if you read the book and if you chant the phrase 10 times a day, all week long, you're not going to actually increase your freedom to such a degree that it you've, you've just created a new high watermark, that the needles hardly budged in respect to the long game. The long game of discipline equals freedom is an entirely different thing that requires a big backwards reflection, not not understanding that, oh, today will be a little bit easier or today was a bit easier or yesterday was a bit easier. I'm talking about, well, decades ago, when I started using discipline equals freedom, I can now understand dot, dot, dot. So the, there's really two, there's the acute discipline equals freedom. And then for lack of a better term, there's the chronic understanding of discipline equals freedom. Like hey, and hey,
3: could I jump in and just men- yeah, absolutely. mention something, how, how this could maybe... Uh, make an impact on, say, a a 19, 20, 21-year-old out there listening to this. When I I talk to young people, what I like to explain to them, if you're disciplined enough to to get yourself a job, even if it's a part-time job, if you're disciplined enough to find some type of volunteer endeavor to get involved with, even at the young age, if you're disciplined enough to go, you know, whether it be a university or whether it be a technical school, but to learn something if, you know, because a lot of those things do take discipline. Uh, What it does is it opens up options for you that you're not even going to realize these these options might become available 10 years down the road that, you know, just because you, uh, you know, uh, were able to gain people in your network from this part-time job you took on because instead of hanging out around the house, you decided to go work or, you know, instead of hanging around the house, you decided to get involved with this volunteer opportunity and it created some type of networks for you and it gave you some experience. And that could open up doors for you 10 years down the road that you're not even thinking about right now. So when I say, you know, self-discipline provides options, which ultimately provides freedom, I, I think that's kind of a, a real way for, for people to look at that.
1: Yeah, and I'd, I'd just like to reframe what I said based on that. A better way for me to explain it is discipline equals freedom in the day with an eye towards discipline equals freedom over a decade. So view your goals in the day, but understand where, you're ultimately, where your 10-year project or your 20-year or your 30-year or your 40-year project is taking you and maintain a form of overarching discipline towards your mega outcome that you're pursuing decades from now 100
0: scott you got anything to add to that no good okay uh tanya then goes on She has a question as a leader how would you model accepting praise especially in front of subordinates uh extrinsic extrinsic motivation isn't sustainable but getting the nod plus letting it sink in can help with a sense of self-worth she asks because the warrior archetype Tends to spit out compliments like a vending machine with a crumpled five dollar bill. <laughs> Humility is a virtue, but for someone struggling, that virtue can be a double edged sword. So let's go back to this question: As a leader, how would you model accepting praise, especially in front of subordinates? John, I'll start with you.
3: Yeah, I, I think I think the best thing what I what I found, and you know it, you know if, if you're trying to be a humble leader, a lot of times you you know you, you just don't want to accept the praise. But what I found over time is the best way to handle that. Is just, uh, you know, just say thank you and accept it and and appreciate the fact that somebody found some value in the leadership that that you're exhibiting. If you, I think if uh, you try to kind of put it off, I, I think in a way you're not paying respect to the person who's providing the phrase if, if you don't accept it. It's just like gifts. You know, sometimes you got to accept the gift, you know, uh, meaning that gift of praise. And and just thank the person for for feeling the way they do or, or recognizing something in you that 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 they recognize. So I think I I think just the best way is to simply acknowledge it, thank them, and um, and and then just move on from there. Scott, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm completely in agreement with uh, John. There, uh, it's good to be humble always. Uh, you know the. There are so many leaders out there that uh, you know, beat their chests and look at me and I'm I'm gonna save the world. And sometimes they are the ones that are running the opposite direction when when push comes to shove because they they've tried to prop themselves up and uh they get to a point where they can't back it up because they're they're not that person. So I think humility and being humble is something that is I think it's part of who we are, uh, initially. But you can also foster that, and and I think that's an important piece as well. Uh, it it uh, it's just for me being humble. You know, I I, I spout off and walk the walk and all that stuff. But at the same time, when it comes down to it, and somebody gives me a compliment, uh, you know, I'm I, I take it with with humility because. Getting to where we are and doing the things we do in our leadership roles isn't easy, and so it's nice to have a compliment. Just know how to take
1: it, like that, Sean. Uh, I would. I was really bad at this, and I'm still not that great at it. So if I was getting uh, some praise or a compliment, uh, particularly in front of subordinates or in amongst my peers, uh, I didn't want it. I. This is how I used to work. I just want direct, concise feedback on how to do it better. Don't tell me how I did it well. Let's not waste time. Let's get on with how I can do it better. That's just how I was taught. And that, that felt right to me. So I don't, like, I'll duck a pat on the back if I can. But you can, you can double barrel blast me in the chest with all of the things that I've done wrong. That's what interests me. And so I was really quite bad at accepting praise. Uh, but a couple of years ago, just under two years ago, our mutual friend, Seb Lavois, who's a jerk, uh, he said, uh, hey, man, you've got to get better at accepting praise because people are saying nice things and you're kind of duck dodging and diving it and, uh, and, and you just got to get better at it. And I said, OK, I will. And so it took me some time to be able to have someone say, hey, listen, I really appreciate that. And me being able to say thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. That just wasn't my M.O., but now I'm a lot more comfortable with it. But how I got comfortable with it is maybe not how everyone gets comfortable with it. I'll just throw you my workaround for accepting praise. If someone hits me with a bit of praise, I, I know that it's important for me to respect their uh, praise by because they're giving it out. It's like a gift, as John said. I, I want to acknowledge that gift. But I take the gift, and in my head, I turn it into Why was this important to them? What is it that I did that was notable to them that I can recognize within them and then either replicate that to some degree and start building that for them or replicate it for others so that I can build it for others? Am I missing anything in this praise that was so notable that I can replicate it easily to improve others? So that's how I was accepting praise, was looking at almost uh, tactically understand if i could use it not not to weaponize it but to use it almost as a tool to some degree if that makes sense
2: hmm. like
1: that <clears throat> john or scott you got any thoughts on that
2: yeah if i could i just uh Absolutely. Sean, sean brings me to a good point there uh, we talk about people coming up to us and saying thank you for your service which is a, is a compliment and and but it's a broader one so uh i think one of the things I've found that I do in this respect is I will say when they come up to me and say, thank you for your service, I'll say, it's what we do. So it's, it's actually, I'm deflecting it as an individual thing. I'm making it a broader scope. I'm saying it's what we do. You know, it's not, it's not what I do it's what we do as, as soldiers and, and service members. It's what we do. And so when I talk about, you know, uh, getting compliments about the rolling barrage or my work in in, uh, PTSD and mental wellness and stuff within the veteran community in Canada and the U.S. uh, I just simply say, you know, I have a great team behind me. I can't, I can't do this all myself. I appreciate uh, you know, the gesture of of saying thanks, but really it, it comes down to everybody working as a team here. And, and that's, I think even when it's, when we deal with ourselves singularly in this regard, it comes back down to a team effort. And I say that because John mentioned earlier, mentors, you know, I was mentoring these people and I didn't even realize I was. And so I've reached out to, you know, people that have been in my leadership hub at the, in the beginning. And, and I've told them, Hey, thanks for getting me to where I am today. I, I, I couldn't have done it without, you know, following some of the things you've done. So it, when I take a compliment, I, it's actually, for me, I'm, I'm spreading it up the chain to everybody that's helped me get to where I am. So that's, that's humility and being humble in itself. I think.
3: I like that. And, you know, I I do want to say that there is another side to this humility thing. And, And I think, you know, leaders absolutely need to be humble. As a matter of fact, I was, I was talking to, uh, Somebody uh, a few weeks ago who who mentioned, you know, the arm, the U.S. Army has seven Army values. And they said, you know, we I think there needs to be an eighth one, which is humility, because humility is that important. But the other side of humility is I think we have to be humble enough to accept a helping hand when it is offered to us. And I think a lot of us mm-hmm. as leaders, you know, we've you know, we we think we're strong you know, we think we're strong. We think we could overcome anything, you know, and we can't, (laughs) you know, somebody, somebody wants to offer a helping hand. I think a lot of times we have to be humble enough to accept, accept that helping hand and thank people for it. And, um, and, and kind of bring people into the fold, bring them into the team rather than trying to do everything on our own. That's a great point,
1: Sean. I agree. Yeah. I, and now I'd like to take that, uh, fine comment and build it out in a bit of a different direction, but still relevant to the long game. And I'm going to use the opportunity of today being a PTSD Awareness Day, um, the 27th uh, here in Canada. I'm not sure if that's the case down in the United States, but certainly it's uh, it's being spoken about uh, up here in Canada today as part of the overall uh, month of June, which is Men's Mental Health Month. So today being PTSD Awareness Day, Holy moly, is that a long game? And I'm not talking about if you've got PTSD. I'm talking about the entire subject. At one point, it wasn't called PTSD. When I was on the teams, there was no such word as PTSD. What was the word before that? Was it shell shock? What was the word before that? And what is the word today? And what will be the word 10 years from now or 50 years from now? The long game. The long game of PTSD awareness, What? didn't exist at one point, which now exists and in the future will look something completely different perhaps. But the fact remains that over time, individuals and organizations and teams and units and all kinds of institutions have made an effort, some good, some less than good, towards educating, bringing more awareness, more treatments, more abilities to manage PTSD from a time where, again, 20 years ago there was almost nothing, till today where there are many options available to veterans, first responders, law enforcement, or anyone else out there who uh, is challenged with PTSD or some sort of mental health challenges. It The landscape two, three decades ago was pretty bare. Uh, But now it's a lot richer in respect to PTSD awareness, and it will be another 10 years from now. So I I state all of that to make this point, that sometimes when someone's standing at the onset of day one, I just got told I, uh, I have PTSD. It seems like there's no solution inside. I'm not sure. What does this even look like? Well, there's lots of people that have managed to Uh, navigate their way through the space of PTSD from two decades ago or a decade ago when there weren't all of these tools and awareness uh, abilities available. Now it's in place, so it should act as some sort of positive, hopeful message that if, if it could be done two decades ago to get out of these kind of struggles, you can definitely have a leg up on it today versus back then. I hope that makes sense. Indeed. Go yeah, ahead, it makes,
2: yeah, it makes great sense, uh, Sean. Uh, you know, as a as a product of the '80s and '90s, uh, PTSD. Uh, you know, if you look back to the Vietnam War in the end weeks around '74, uh, there wasn't even a diagnosis by the American Medical Association until 1982. Uh, you know, they they created the designation post-traumatic stress disorder, which I mean, when you think about that, 74 to 82, it took them eight years to come up with an actual terminology piece for that. And, and there was so much work that had to be done and is still being done today uh, in this regard. Uh, so for us in the, in the awareness game, you know, the long game of that from the 80s, 90s, and, and now into the you know, 2020s, uh, we're talking 40 years. And so for me, specifically 1992 to now, you know, we're looking 30, 32 years, I think it is. And, and I didn't know when I went to National Defense Medical Center uh, to get checked out because I knew something was right after I rotated back to Canada. Uh, I was literally sitting in front of a couple of doctors with blank expressions and blank notepads in front of them because they, they didn't know what they were dealing with. And, and so, as you mentioned, you know, things now... We have all these tools that were taken, and I I use this lightly, so bear with me, on the backs of guys like me and guys from my my tour and and subsequent tours after that through the 90s in the Balkans. uh, They they learned how to develop a a curriculum that deals with PTSD and operational stress injury. Uh, It's come a long ways in that long game from back in 1914 and 1915 when you weren't prepared to go back up on the front line. So they shot you out back because you're a cowardice. So, and today, you know, we, we're still dealing with the university alley to service issues, uh, which is something that I'm trying to, that's, that's where I'm working towards trying to, to mitigate is in that regard so that we can keep our soldiers in longer. And because they've spent all the money in recruiting and training and so on. And it's like a broken leg. You just need to, you need to figure out how to fix it so that it's strong enough to carry on with the, with the duty at hand. And lots of troops are capable of doing that. I mean, there are guys still in uniform that are living with PTSD to the maximum, but they're in for the long game. They're getting their 20 years or their 40 years or whatever it is they're looking for. Uh, so today, there's and, and it's, it's a really good point, today we, there shouldn't be the list of suicides that there are because there is so much information out there now there is so much support there is so much everything out there the only thing that's lacking is the soldier or you know whatever trade they're in being able to recognize that they need help and actually putting their hand up there and saying hey i need a hand with this they don't want to end their career so there's that piece of the stigma puzzle and this comes back to Universality of service stuff. Uh, if we're actually going to support these people and get them well and well enough to continue serving, then they have to be able to have a, a play, a way to deal with that. And and I think, you know, they've come leaps and bounds from where they were, but they still need work. And I'm, uh, I'm willing to, you know, give my piece on that anytime anybody wants to listen, we need to change the, the goalposts on that. So, that's yeah. my concern on the long game there. For sure. <clears throat>
0: uh, any any other thoughts? I got another great... Tanya's spitting fire over here, so i am just gonna <laughs> throw her back up. But, uh, um, she says, thank you. Perhaps accepting the praise slash gift humbly can mean the standard has now been raised. Best way to thank someone for a gift, for a gift is to do your best with it. And I really like this. And it actually goes very much into what you guys are saying. I know after my diagnosis with PTSD this is basically how I tried to run the game for a little while was anytime I was capable of something that that was the new standard and then I would try to beat that standard. And then I would, so <clears throat> for instance, I, I still don't like crowds, but, uh, in terms of long game, I, I want to be able to go out into crowds. I like to be able to go places with my wife, my kids and all that good stuff. Um, but it wouldn't have happened, had I not taken the time to actually work those, daily steps of oh I can handle being around five people okay cool that's the standard now I'm not going below that oh there's six people okay I'll work on that and then 10 and then 20 and then 50 and then 100 and then walking through Costco on a busy Sunday morning that kind of stuff where you can especially when it comes to PTSD is that yes it is a long game it is a long concept but it is manageable if you work it in a long-term plan to say, I think
1: well well it is manageable and it is a long-term game but where it usually is done wrong is when someone is at the start of the game and thinks oh, oh no <laughs> doom and gloom that that ain't a fun game like who who sits down to Monopoly and thinks oh, oh this is gonna suck <laughs> oh no it's no, not a fun game, game. <laughs> who, who wants to play the board game of the- uh, so it's a it's for us to spin it to some degree that whatever we're engaged in over the long game, has to be almost gamified so that you can find ways to not entertain yourself, that's a a little bit casual, but find ways to engage in a way that intrigues you or puzzles you or challenges you or fascinates you or I didn't think it could be done this way, so I'm going to try it that way. Whatever the case is that you need to gamify some of these things to stay engaged in the long game the long game requires gamification at the honeymoon phase of the moment that you get told maybe, or get diagnosed with PTSD. um, Maybe the honeymoon phase will be, Oh, I've got, I, I need to do this, 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 and this. And by the end of the week, maybe you're all out of the honeymoon phase. And if you never had discipline or focus to engage in it over the long term, maybe you can replace discipline and focus with gamification, find a way to, Inch your way f- on a four trajectory uh, in a way that uh, not amuses you, but uh, keeps you involved. In okay, next day I'm looking forward to doing dot dot dot. That's a great point, um, John. You
0: want to talk about mindset? I think that goes directly into what we're what Sean's going after in terms of yeah. Longing. I mean,
3: I, I think I think mindset is is such a powerful thing, and and you know, just just getting back to this whole. PTSD thing which mindset is certainly a part of. I think we have to continue to remind people that hey you're not in it alone. you know, as I mentioned before, be humble enough to ask for help, be humble enough to accept help and then we also have to look for people to, just just to reach out to. Uh, and I just mean you know just, just just on a regular day think of somebody who you know you know that you served with, and maybe they never showed any signs of having PTSD, but just reach out and ask people how they're doing. And, and, and I think that uh, that helps a lot, but, but in terms of mindset, uh, I, I, I think creating a mindset where the impossible seems possible is, is so important. I know that's a lot easier say than it is, than it is a do for, for a lot of people, but I'll tell you there's, Something I came across uh, maybe a little over a week ago that I've been intentionally doing every morning now, and it's uh, from a book, Miracle Morning. Uh, you know, where every morning I go through a process of, and again, I'm not, I'm not very good at meditating, but I try to sit in silence a little bit. It's an acronym, Savers. S a v e r s. The S stands for silence. Just just be silent. If you want to call it meditation, you can call it me- meditation. Affirmations, you know, positive affirmations, that actually works. Visualization, you know, visualizing a successful future for yourself, whatever that might look like in in your own world. Exercise, extremely important. Um, uh, Reading, you know, read something. Actually, uh, since I started this little process, I'm actually reading through segments of, of the Bible. And then journaling is also important. And then I added two things to it uh, a P and a G prayer and gratitude practice. And gratitude practice is not only about thinking about things you're grateful for in your life. And I do think that's important. uh, But gratitude practice is also about thinking of times when you did something nice for somebody that they appreciated and how that made you feel. And when you, go revisit that feeling. It actually helps you physically, spiritually, emotionally to become a better person. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Mm-hmm. I like that.
1: Sean or Scott? Yeah, just yeah. a real quick one. Uh, I think that that's super powerful because you don't hear too many strong men talking about engaging in things that make us feel good on a spiritual or emotional level. Uh, it's easy for us to explain that we like doing knuckle pushups, but it's, it's harder for a guy. I think some guys anyway, myself, I'll, I'll speak for myself. It's harder for me to talk about the soft skills, the heart-based skills, the super sensitive skills, the emotional stuff. And, and, uh, I know I need to get better at it. I think we all do. I don't think we ever like peak. We, we never reach our peak of maximum emotional awesomeness. So I, every day I try to do it a little bit better. And uh, to, to John's point, it's really powerful. There's, there's years uh, not too long ago that I absolutely didn't understand this concept. But now that I'm engaging in the process of trying to be a little more warm and kinder and gentler, not only to the people around me, but to myself, it's it's a worthwhile pursuit for sure yeah scott
2: so, so yeah I, I, one thing i, I want to throw in here and it's maybe a question more than a than than an answer and i'm just kind of putting it out there for the four of us uh, you might not be able to get to that level you might be in such a depressive state that you're not ready to to be able to find that little piece in the day that gets you to sabers right and and Sometimes that sitting in silence is, is exactly what happens. So I think a key component, and I'll just put this piece in for me, is, is physical activity. And, and I, I know from having, you know, gone through a depression myself and watching my loved ones around me go through them as well, uh, they don't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to get out of bed or I didn't want to leave the house or, you know, I'm sitting in my garage now with all my friends at the moment because this is where I'm the most comfortable and you know it's me myself and I my three best friends and trying to to break past that that depressive piece where you you just don't want to be yeah I don't want to get into that position in my mind where I have to accept that I I'm, I'm not doing well I just want to wallow in this piece right now where I'm at and so this is where the long game comes in again you don't have to Run right outside and ride your bicycle around the block twenty times to get that energy moving. It could just mean walking up and down the stairs, mm. getting the blood flowing. All of these things, you know, they work on our amygdala, they work on our frontal lobes, they work on everything that gets us into these states. Physical activity is huge, and my my state with uh, you know uh, the Concussion Legacy Foundation, we're kind of working with them now uh, with the Rolling Barrage. I've learned so much about uh, CTE, which is uh, a deadly disorder that comes from not having proper brain health in that you're receiving all kinds of head traumas. Those things, th- those head traumas are very systemic in, in our, the way we feel every day because not everything's firing on all cylinders. So uh, finding that brain health is important and that comes through physical activity. It's, it's getting up. It's walking down the hallway. It's, it's those basic little things that each bit steps into the long game where you're going to keep moving along to, you know, one day you actually step on the treadmill or you go outside and go for a run or you just walk to the park and back. You know, those are all key things that, that help our brains and, and that will essentially get us to be able to do sabers. And I, I think that that's, if I've tied that back in and, and so my, I guess my question would be for you guys. So our listeners, uh, followers are watching here today have, have maybe some different insights. Like for me, I I go and do photography. Photography puts me into a better place because I can make a picture look the way I want it to look and nobody else can do that. That's just me. So I have to walk outside, take a photograph of the sunset or of a tree or a bumblebee or whatever And I, I find the beauty in that little piece and that is so healing for me. Um, so what do you guys do to get to, to get two savers that to to be able to employ that? That's a good question. Go ahead, John. I mean,
3: that, that, that's a great point. And, and, um, you know, one, one thing that kind of encourages me to get out and I do, you know, thank God, um. I, I do like to exercise. It's been just part of my lifestyle forever. So I continue to do that. But, you know, I have days too where maybe I'm call it depressed and maybe don't want to do the things I should be doing. And I'll tell you, my dog helps me out. Uh, you know, take, taking my dog out for a walk and just feeling like, okay, I'm responsible for this animal. I've got to walk them. Encourages me to get out of the house. And I know, uh, you know, there's, there's many others who use dogs as, you know, support animals, or emotional support animals, that type of thing. And for me, that's what works. And I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm.
1: I like that, Sean. Yeah. So two things, one is pattern interrupts <clears throat> and by pattern interrupt, I mean, when's the last time you smiled? Mm-hmm. Has it been this year? And so the I chance did I or did I not challenge the entire interwebs to shoot a photo of you smiling outside in the sunshine and put it on IG and at me. Wake up, smile, Mm -hmm. because it works magic. And I know dudes that are angry as angry can be, and they can't break out of that anger because they can't smile. They don't even remember how to smell it, spell it. They haven't seen it. (laughs) And so uh, pattern interrupt, smile, or some such thing that is way out of your regular operating procedure that day. The second thing is, of course, uh, get out in nature and stare at that big yellow disc in the sky. Uh, It is actually its own weird little bit of magic. Once it starts shooting those vitamin D rays into your Mark I eyeballs... Things start getting better. That routine of get up, stare at the sun, not directly, read a book as you're staring at the indirect sun. Make sure that you're drinking a big glass of water right away first thing in the morning. Don't, don't be pounding your coffee within two minutes of waking up. Actually hold off for maybe an hour and a half, 90 minutes, adenosine clearance from the body a la Dr. Huberman Protocol. So, you know, like there are routines that you can set in place that will keep you legit on a forward trajectory that you should, after a while, start looking forward to. Man, when I get up, I look forward to the sun, to grabbing the Hagakure, to finding something in the Hagakure that intrigues me, that I can deeply contemplate for 15 or 30 minutes or whatever the case is, and then look forward to my first cup of coffee two or three hours after I've woken up. Things to look forward to as part of a positive routine of pattern interrupts that require not being angry, but require smiling at the sun when you look at it.
0: I really like those. Uh, I guess my answer is jiu-jitsu to most <laughs> things. I think uh, that has been the biggest help for me across the board in getting to a place where I can actually calm. And I think really all of these things come back to being intentional, right? It is just at the very base of it, you have to put some intentionality in what you're doing every day, which I think is fantastic.
1: Sorry. I did want to draw that out uh, based on the photography comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason that maybe photography is good for some people is because they want to create a little piece of art. But for me, a longtime photographer, average photographer what photography does for me is make me present in the moment. I'm very in the now when I've got a camera in my hand and I'm looking to capture the now I have to be in the now I'm not creating art. As I take that photo, what I'm creating is a capturing moment of me being present in the moment and understanding that I was right in that, not I'm trying to capture the future or the past. I'm capturing the now because I'm in the now as I'm trying to capture it. So that's what photography means to me.
0: I like it. I like a lot. Um, Now we're just over time here. I know, Scott, you got to run. So let's hit some uh, final comments, final thoughts um, on the long game or anything else that we've talked about. Scott, I'll hit you first.
2: Just do your best every day. Be humble. Try and smile as uh, Sean has pointed out. Those little things make a huge difference in your day and your days will multiply, be a force multiplier in that regard, be your own force multiplier, Uh, you know, make things happen for yourself slowly, get it to build and the momentum will be there. Uh, I'm proof positive that, you know, after sticking a gun in my mouth uh, in 1993, and I'm still here today, you know, or you can do this. It just takes time.
3: And we're glad for it. Absolutely. Uh, John? Yeah, you know, we hear, <clears throat> we hear so many things that we should be doing to be a emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically healthy person. And sometimes it becomes overwhelming to people. And I, I think we all have to realize that you don't have to do everything. You know, maybe pick, you know, three things out that, that you could work on. You know, uh, maybe, you know, one of them could be maybe a little bit of exercise. You know, maybe one of them could be a little bit of journaling. I mean, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter. What it is, but you you don't have to do everything. But pick a few things out, try to be intentional about working those as as a as a daily routine, and then maybe expand those things as as you continue through. But don't be overwhelmed by all of the things we hear that we should be doing. Pick a few, work them, and uh, if it doesn't work for you, pick something else. But uh, you know there there is a Hope out there for everybody. You just have to find something that works for you and then work it. 100%. Sean?
1: Uh, As I see it now, and this is what I didn't understand when I was a young man, but I do now understand it at 60, is I had two jobs as a young man. One was to play the long game for me, and one was to play the long game for the team around me. And by that, I mean now I can look back and realize that the body of work that I put in place or the examples that I set or the minor wisdom that I've created uh, within my body of work, that has acted as a catalyst for some younger men that are tracking these kind of things, tracking the long game stories, if, if you will. And so uh, it's our job to do our best for sure, but it's our job to do the best for everyone around us by living an exemplary forward trajectory that others can understand are available for them as well. Yeah.
0: I like that a lot. Uh, (laughs) And I I caught something that John was saying there as well earlier was uh, you don't have to do everything, but you got to do something. (laughs) You can't just sit around and do nothing, which is uh, I think a key component of everything we've gone over today in terms of the long game. And I can't thank you enough, John been really appreciate you being on here. You're welcome. Anytime, anytime. Uh, I really
3: appreciate it. This was a great conversation. I hope that people listening, uh, are motivated and inspired by things that they heard today. Absolutely. And
1: Scott, dude, again, I am right. I'm all pumped up. <laughs> oh my God, I'm, I'm all got, jacked up right now. I got work to do. This is good. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm going to go, go,
3: go do some pull-ups. Okay.
0: Dude, I, I'm go. already pulling up. <laughs> and Scott, again, thank you again for being on here. It's always awesome to see you. you also have an open chair any day of the week. So, you know, as we, as we all learn, what the long game is as we all build upon the body of work that we are actually able to draw upon, we can grow as better people, better humans and better men. And you can do that with us every day here on the collective. We'll see y'all tomorrow. Chimo. Chimo.